For your awards consideration, Max presents the Emmy Award-winning HBO original series, Succession. As power struggles ensue, the Roy family weighs up a future where their cultural and political weight is severely curtailed. Don't miss the series IndieWire calls the end-all, be-all of TV. Emmy eligible for Outstanding Drama Series and all other categories. Succession is streaming now on Max. We are here today with the executive producers of Apple TV Plus's City on Fire, Stephanie Savage and Josh Schwartz. They have a company, Fake Empire, and they've been behind some of the biggest young adult hits on television, The O.C. and Gossip Girl. Here they are. Stephanie and Josh, welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Let's go back to the beginning. The two of you met at McGee's company? Yeah, we met uh, 20 years ago, actually maybe a little bit more now, uh, as we're, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the OC, which is, which is where we first met. And uh, I was a young writer, baby writer, uh, and Stephanie was a big shot producer, uh, partnered with McGee. Uh, and we met on just like a general, general meeting. And out of those conversations, the OC and this 20-year working relationship was born. So what's the secret sauce to your shorthand? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing that happened um, in our relationship that is pretty unique is, as Josh said, when he started, when we started working together, I was his boss and he was handing in uh, scripts to me and I was giving notes on them and determining if they were like worthy of uh, passing along to the studio and the network. And then pretty quickly, um, once the show started going, we worked really closely together and we were under a lot of pressure. the show had a unique situation where they wanted to do seven episodes before baseball. So it was going to air in the summer. So while we were shooting the pilot of the OC, we were also editing a sizzle reel to get the show picked up. So the show was actually picked up before the pilot was finished shooting and we went straight into production. So it was a really intense working relationship. And then it, during that first season, I wrote my first episode of the OC Um, which was kind of my first produced episode of anything. And uh, then suddenly I was the baby writer giving my script to the successful showrunner and hoping that he would uh, would approve of it. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it was Josh. (laughs) And he was giving me notes. Um, So I think that that uh, changing of hats and changing of roles and both of us having to be really vulnerable with the other person and sit in the other chair kind of set the table for a a long uh, working relationship where we feel um, really comfortable kind of in each other's heads. Now, Josh, I read someplace that the whole conceit for OC, does it have something to do with you knowing too much at USC? Uh, It was definitely uh, inspired in parts uh, by my time at USC where I was uh, an East Coast uh, I would some might say neurotic Jewish kid uh, who came to the to to USC came to the land of water polo players and uh, their their uh, very attractive blonde uh, girlfriends none of whom wanted you know I felt like anything to do with me at the time uh, I didn't know water polo was a sport 
uh, let alone something with a lot of uh, currency in college. So I guess in some ways it was um, some revenge against uh, <laughs> some of those circumstances, although n- none of the people uh, would have had any idea I was avenging them. But um, it was definitely inspired by, by that time. Yeah. So growing up, I'd always cry to my mom, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, like, you don't understand, you didn't grow up in my generation. And I think every teen says this to their parent. But you guys, how do you stay relevant? You seem to know what all young adults are thinking. Like Barry Manilow writes the songs that the whole world sang. (laughs) You guys write the series that all the young adults watch. Is it like my mom said, it doesn't matter, generations don't matter, teens are always the same, they're doing the same stuff that they were doing back in the 50s as they're doing now? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. Uh, I think Steph and I would both uh, probably admit that as time has gone on, we find ourselves understanding and agreeing with the parents in our show. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Increasingly, although there was a very strong adult dynamic at the time, Uh, to the OC even 20 years ago when we were much closer in age to the the younger cast members. Um, But there is a certain universality to the to the teenage experience. There is a timelessness, whether, you know, whether it's Rebel Without a Cause or American Graffiti or Dazed and Confused, even John Hughes movies, Cameron Crowe movies. There is a certain universality in kind of the emotions that these characters that, you know, young people experience. Obviously, the world has changed. I think we try to pay really close attention, whether it's having younger writers on our staff or listening to our actors and just trying to incorporate as much of that into the, our shows as we, as we can. And then, of course, everything is getting rebooted in the streaming era. Where are we on an OC reboot? Uh, I think we're, I think we're not going to do that. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we were producers on, on this gossip girl reboot that ran for a couple of seasons on HBO max. I'm very proud of that show. Um, that felt like it had more of a, um, you know, there, there's this kind of a franchise to gossip girl of there's an anonymous blogger who is, who is kind of charting the lives of these characters in New York. And, uh, I think the OC was really just kind of specific to these characters and, you know, um, feels like we, we made something. We're really grat- grateful that 20 years later, people are still watching the show and still want to talk about the show. And I think we're just going to leave it right there. Now, you've built this empire on TV. You had OC at 92 episodes. The original Gossip Girl was at 121 episodes. Are those days of the long-running series gone, in your opinion? Speaking of the kids, and the kids doing more streaming nowadays, I'm just curious... When you build something nowadays, is it now specifically for streaming? Is that the place to go? I think it is. Um, Network television still um, exists. Uh, For our storytelling, especially the stuff that we write, um, that is targeted for streaming. And with that comes a shorter order, you know, a shorter order every season, and then a likely uh outcome that three seasons is going to feel like you've told your whole story so that sort of adjusts in your head three seasons or less you you know you might be something that the story is told in one season so um adjusting that in your mind in terms of like your larger storytelling arc i think is something that you know we think a lot about we're definitely still trained in the idea of like you get to 100 episodes you get a cake and like that's the whole goal um (laughs) You know, and, we, and that's what we loved about the CW um, and its prior Warner Brothers CBS owned incarnation. Uh, there's obviously it's continuing in some new incarnation now. 
um, led by Jesus, it appears, based on the, the order that they made on Friday. But um, but for us, that was kind of a, a, a place between streaming and network where you could tell stories for younger adults that could still have longer runs. Um, but obviously that's even changing now. So it, it feels like it's not even, it just seems like that's that's really what's available. The broadcast networks tend to skew older uh, than obviously some of our young adults uh, skewing shows. It's amazing what CW did. You know, you look at these shows, you know, up until recent history, they were tastemaker shows for their demographic. I mean, in the, in the case of Gossip Girl, you were defining fashion. Mm-hmm. You were weather vane with fashion. When streaming was getting off the ground, there was the whole thing with, um, like a lot of these CW shows would find a second life and bigger audiences on streaming. Mm-hmm. That said, do you think the success can be replicated again? Are we in such a bifurcated you know, viewership universe that it's hard to create one thing and, and have it have this big wattage? Or no, there's still hope that that can be done. I mean, there, hope springs eternal, but it's different now. I mean, obviously, Succession is a show that we love and watch and everyone we know is talking about it. But, you know, um, compared to some of the broadcast stand- network shows, the audience is, is different. I do think that HBO with the Sunday night thing still has a foot in that like water cooler. Because I, I think it's less about episode orders than it is about binging versus weekly. And there's just something to when people are consuming a show once a week that helps drive a conversation. Um, that's just a trickier conversation to drive when binging. Obviously, there can be shows that all the episodes drop at once that can still be monster hits. It's just you're not necessarily having a conversation about them with people in the same way because you don't know what episode they're on. Um, and I think that that's probably been one of the bigger changes to the to the business more even than episode count. Tell me about boarding City on Fire. So the author, Garthrisk Halberg, he was paid in advance of two million dollars. Every author, every author shakes their fist in, in <laughs> anger and yeah. consternation to this day about that. For your awards consideration, Max presents the Emmy Award-winning HBO original series Succession. As power struggles ensue, the Roy family weighs up a future where their cultural and political weight is severely curtailed. Don't miss the series IndieWire calls the end-all, be-all of TV. Emmy eligible for Outstanding Drama Series and all other categories. Succession is streaming now on Max. You open this book, what jumps out at you? A bunch of things. First of all, just like the, these great worlds, and we are true lovers of uh, subcultures and cities and neighborhoods. And um, the book, which is set in 1977, uh, really does a beautiful job of knitting together this kind of downtown music scene and a very wealthy um, Upper East Side uh, family. Um, in a way that I think we were really attracted to both of there's a kind of a young love story in the downtown world and there's a broken marriage in the uptown world and everybody's got secrets and there's a shooting in Central Park that that kind of brings all these worlds together. Um, and it just felt like it ticked so many of our favorite boxes. 
you know, it's interesting. The conceit of just the basic conceit, girl in the park, <laughs> reminded me of the preppy murder that happened mm -hmm. in, in the 80s. That's, that's the first thing that kept coming to mind. I don't know if that ever inspired the author or played into your inspirations or any of that. The Robert Chambers situation. Um, it didn't, except for Robert Chambers is a is a figure that looms large. I feel like in the background of a lot of our um, work. When I was growing up, that was like such a big, scary story, um, and he was such a kind of monstrous figure um, that I think that that his his shadow uh, fell on a, on a lot of uh, writers' work moving forward from then. So how did City on Fire wind up at Apple? Did you guys have an auction? Did they come through with the biggest bid? Was this something that could have gone broadcast? We had uh, been talking to Apple, wanting to get in business with them uh, and excited to be a part of anything that they were you know, doing in the streaming space. Um, and so when uh, I was actually, Stephanie, this book, when it came out, uh, sat on my bedside table for many years because it's quite long. Stephanie read it right away. So when the rights became available to the book, she's like, now you need to read it. Uh, and then we, which I did, I had to dust it off. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's 800 pages long. Um, we brought it to Apple and they were really excited about it as well. And it felt like the perfect uh, kind of project for us to do with them. They wanted something that would felt streaming and, uh, you know, elevated uh, and something that, that felt like it was designed for streaming. And this felt like an opportunity to, as Steph said, it ticked a lot of boxes of things that we love, but it also pushed us into some new areas and storytelling that we hadn't explored before. Um, and so it just was a really happy marriage. What a murderer's row as far as your, your actors go here. I mean, Jemima Kirk and Chase Suey Wonders. Tell me about assembling them. How long is your casting process? We actually had a, a we, this was all put together during the pandemic. Um, and so everything was over Zoom or on tape, which made for extra challenging times. Um, and Patrick Rush, our uh, CD was someone who we worked with going back all the way to the OC and who we love and trust. So we already had a shorthand with him, but we did give ourselves extra time, especially to find our Charlie and our Sam. Um, Wyatt Olaf and Chase V. Wonders, uh, because we it was so important that the right people are were in those roles and uh, we knew they could be tricky to find. Now, when you assemble your writer's room, you know, whether it's for Gossip Girl or for this or OC, Josh, you're from Providence. Steph, I mm -hmm. think, I believe you're from, from Canada. Correct. Do you have people in your writer's room from Upper East and West Side or from the OC? Voices that are there to say, no, that's not how it happened on the beach. Or voices that are like, my tour man doesn't do that. I'm just curious because you guys are so authentic. I mean, you're creating tales that people that live on the Upper West and East Side look at Gossip Girl and say, that's me. That's going on. That's my life. Yeah. Interestingly, City on Fire is the one show where Steph and I wrote uh, all the episodes ourselves um, because it was the pandemic. Uh, and the Zoom room thing just seemed like it was going to be <laughs> at least it's going to be pretty challenging. Uh, also, as we mentioned, the book is 800 pages long, and we figured by the time any writer got through the book, we would be breaking um, <laughs> season. I think for us, we with, when hiring writers, uh, and again, I don't 
we may not be allowed to do that again. I don't think that we would choose to do that again anyway. It was a, it was a lot of work. It was fun, but um, we love having a writer's room. And usually what we look for is just voices that we really, you know, um, that just really writers that feel like they have a voice, that feel like they're contributing something creative and specific. They don't necessarily have to be from that world. Although in the case of Gossip Girl, certainly there were writers who were bringing in that sense of, sense of authenticity. I think on the OC, uh, there were no people from uh, Newport Beach. McGee obviously was a producer on the show and, and is from down there. Um, and other times, you know, we love, when we find writers we love, we love to kind of keep them around. We did this Marvel show, Runaways, for three seasons, and then we migrated that writing staff to Looking for Alaska, which was a limited series we did for Hulu based on John Green's book. Those two shows could not have been more different, but we loved those writers and we felt like they each had unique points of view that could be reapplied these different shows. So it's less, it's less sort of geography specific most of the time. It's just who feels like the best writers. And we love when we find somebody to keep them around and keep them in the fake empire family for as long as possible and hopefully help them develop their own shows to get on the air as we've been able to do in the past and, and serve them as producers. Yeah, I think it was season one or season two of Gossip Girl where Vulture like discovered that the writer's room was in Los Angeles. And so they were going to do like an expose on like the L.A. writers that think they know New York. And then they came out and met with everybody and they were like, oh, and it was like more than half of the writers grew up, you know, on the Upper East Side or in the village. And I had an apartment there and was, you know, spending half my time there. And they were just kind of like, oh, forget it. It's fine. Like, <laughs> you guys got it covered. Hey, look, I think you could do anything. I think you could write some young adult Vermont novel. Uh, you know, drama series, okay? I, I think you guys could do anything. But what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I just remember when the OC came out, we shot that show in Manhattan Beach and kind of around there, Redondo. And we got a lot of uh, grief for the fact that our, our lifeguard towers were a different color than the lifeguard towers that were in in uh, in Newport Beach. And I was like, that's fair. That's fine. Reddit did not exist then. Josh also got a lot of grief oh, yeah. over the the. Oh, yeah. It wasn't called VOC when we did the show either. No one had, had called it that, and people begged us not to call it that. When it's okay to return to writing, what are you guys working on? Do you have any projects that you're sitting on right now that could potentially go when all is well? Well, I know this is deadline, so we're tempted, but uh, I think... Uh, <laughs> There's a couple of things that uh, the ink was not quite dry when the strike hit, and uh, we were excited to get to when it's over, but we probably can't talk about just quite yet. Just yet. But pushing Stay us into tuned. some exciting, pushing us into exciting new, new, new territory. Yeah, new eras. Yeah, <laughs> new eras, new territory. You know, when it comes to City on Fire, talk about how that production differed from your others. Like you said, you were adapting an 800-page novel, but there's a lot of people that worked on this show. Talk about the scope and the span of when you shot, and did you have more time versus a broadcast schedule, which was you got to turn it out, turn it out, turn it out? Yeah, I mean, we had finished all the scripts before we started shooting, and we had... Uh... 10 days an episode, which is not super luxurious for streaming, but certainly for what we were used to in a um, broadcast scenario was was ample time. Um, and we had, it was a very challenging show. It had a lot of scope to it, um, a lot on location, um, action sequences, uh, visual effects. Um, so it was a, it was a real, 
effort on behalf of everybody in the cast and crew had to work really hard to get all the work um, done that we needed. But it was super rewarding and super fun. Josh and I spent six months in New York City, you know, a lot of it uh, on, in the streets, Central Park and Chinatown. And um, Josh uh, ate, ate a lot of good meals. He made that a priority. I did. I did. Yeah, no, and it was, it was, it's a large cast. It's a big ensemble cast, but that served us be, as well because we were shooting the show still in, you know, it was just still pretty covid out there when we started and everyone was masked. And every week you'd find out, oh, this actor tested positive and they were, they exposed these three other actors. And so they're off the board for eight days. And luckily we had a big enough cast that we were able to, uh, and hats off to our, our producer, Michael Strix, who was able to kind of keep, juggling the calendar and the schedule and we never had to shut down during that time um so that was that was an extra challenge but the large cast benefited us we were always able to find something to shoot that day stephanie savage and josh schwartz thank you so much thank you it was thank a pleasure you. thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline make sure you subscribe to us on apple podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.